So page 938, reading Micah chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. That's Micah chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Injustice, inequality, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, political scandals, crisis of leadership, cost of living crisis, society breaking apart at the seams, all leading to so much pain 
and heartache. There seem to be some who are prospering, but others ask how, because so many are struggling. Little hope for the future. What has gone wrong? Where is God in all of this? What can be done? Now, such a description or questioning, I guess, could fit many parts of the world, and many would say that would be true for London today. But in particular, this was true of Israel in the 8th century BC. And so God, the Lord God, wanted to speak into that situation, and he gave his prophet Micah a message. Now, what we non-Hebrew speakers won't immediately realize is that even Micah's name points us to what God wants to say through him. Micah means, who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? So Micah, well, God through Micah will speak to the people. He'll address the situation. But the aim ultimately is to get everyone to look again to the Lord God. And just to see this emphasis, flick to the end of Micah and chapter 7, uh, chapter 7 and verse 18. And you can see as Micah comes to his final conclusion with his own name in mind, verse 18, he says, who is a God like you? And that is the point. By the end of the book, we are to realize there is none other like the Lord God. And even if you just glance over those final verses, you get a glimpse that the character of this God is profoundly glorious. But we will only appreciate that all the more if we then listen first to all that Micah says before his conclusion. So that's what we're going to do here at the 4pm over the next five weeks. Listen in to what God has to say through Micah supremely about himself. So back to chapter one, we need to get our bearings. Many of us aren't familiar with this book, but the first verse does help us quite a lot. So first of all, where was Micah? When you see Moresheth, that's the name of the place where he came from. And at the end of that verse, he tells us this message from God was concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Samaria and Jerusalem, those are two key cities in the history of God's people. After the exodus from Egypt, God took his people to the promised land of Israel. They settled there in time. They had kings, David and Solomon. But after Solomon, the country split. And in the north, well, that was called, a little confusingly, still Israel, or possibly Jacob sometimes. And then in the south, well, that was now called Judah. And the north, remember, which is Israel or Jacob, had as its capital Samaria. And then in the south, Judah had capital Jerusalem. And all of these, both of these, consider themselves God's people. Which partly helps to see why we're reading and listening to Micah today. We are God's people as Christians. So if you consider yourself a Christian, well, Micah's message is for us. Next, Where, when was Micah prophesying? When? Well, the opening verse tells us it was in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of that southern kingdom of Judah. And you can work it out, therefore, if they were on the throne, the dates we're talking about are around 740 to 700 BC, the 8th century. 
And we know from the rest of the Bible that those were very turbulent times. There was an enormous threat for both Israel and Judah, which was a large nation, even empire, called Assyria. So that's where and when. But next, what is this book from Micah? Well, Micah had this ministry over those 40 years or so. And during it, he gave lots of well, what are called oracles. That means individual prophetic messages at particular times. And what Micah has done in his book, if you like, is put together those messages, an anthology, but ordered in a very particular way. And in particular, the way Micah's ordered them is more thematic than chronological. So they aren't necessarily in chronological order, as we will see. Now, we've mentioned we're going to do this. I hope regulars here have had some opportunity to read Micah, maybe a little this week. Although I dare say on first encounter, it would have been quite confusing. So there's this lack of chronological order, but also it just seems hard to put a sense to it. And part of the reason for that is it's not always immediately obvious who is speaking. What I mean, at times in this book, it is clearly Micah speaking, God's message, but Micah is delivering it. At other times, it's Micah's opponents who are speaking. And then at other times, it is, if you like, God speaking directly off the page. And Micah doesn't always alert us to when he's changing speaker. Now, I don't think Micah was trying to be difficult, although it feels like that. But rather, he's trying to get us thinking. He's, if you like saying, if you just glance through my book, it won't make any sense. You've actually got to stop and listen, ponder carefully who would say this and when and why. So that's what we're going to try and do in this series. So what is Micah's message? Well, he begins by declaring The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. So stop what you are doing and listen. Pay attention. And notice who Micah is demanding does this. So yes, he's speaking concerning Jerusalem and Samaria. But verse 2, it is all of you. It is for all the earth to hear. So I guess today, maybe some here, in fact, I know some here, don't consider yourselves Christians. Even though you're here, you might even say, well, I'm not really religious. I'm not into this sort of thing. Pay attention, says Micah. This is for you as well. So what does the world need to hear? The Lord is coming. So where is he coming from? Well, there, end of verse 2, from his holy temple. Now, we know the temple is that building in Jerusalem where God dwelt symbolically. But that temple really was only an earthly model, or you might say an outpost, of the true temple, which is the heavenly temple which is where the Lord God dwells. And the picture is the Lord God is going to leave his temple and come down to earth. Why would he do that? Well, the Lord is coming in judgment. Verse 4, the mountains will melt under him 
and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. As we know, mountains, they're big, they are solid, they are established. You climb a mountain and you get that sense, don't you, of its permanence. It's been there for so long already, it'll still be there a long time after you have gone. Well, as the Lord comes down, the mountain simply melts away. Or again, after you've climbed that mountain, you turn around and look back at that vast valley stretching out before you. Well, now that valley simply falls apart. It slides away. That kind of language maybe today brings to mind computer-generated imagery. But this is for real when the Lord comes in judgment. So why is the Lord coming like this? Well, verse 5, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? As we read this book, we'll see that the people of Micah's day, they'd been living as if the opinions that mattered were those of the people around them, especially the people who could make my life better, the people who could help me get on or get ahead. So, so long as they were happy, well, basically anything goes after that. No one sees what I'm actually doing. And then even when it comes to God, well, we're God's people. It's fine. He's on our side. No worries at all. Except God does see it. All of it. And sin and transgression, to use the language of verse 5, is what matters to God. And when he sees it, he comes to do something about it. Where will he start? Verse 6. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. So Micah is starting with Samaria in the north. Now, when Micah said this, that city, Samaria, was impressive. But not for long, because the Lord is coming. You know how on our screens today we hear news of a bombing raid or an earthquake, all too common at the moment. And sometimes they show you the before and the after pictures. We see the rubble. We see the glorious city left in ruins. It's shocking to see, and that's how it will be for Samaria. And God says he will do it. Why? Verse 7, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So we've heard the Lord God comes down in judgment because of sin. And this verse, if you like, at the beginning of Micah's book gives us a summary of what the issue is. So have a look at what we see. So carved images, that is idolatry. Do you remember God's first commandment to his people? You shall have no other gods before me. And when people break that commandment, they make a carved image or another god they put in place. That is idolatry. The second commandment is broken. It might look slightly different today, but the same principles in play. If God doesn't come first, an idol is found. And God says in judgment... He will lay waste these idols. But let's see, there's more in verse 7, isn't there? What else is repeated as well as the images and idols? Well, prostitutes. 
And again, that now should come as no surprise if you know the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament, when people turn away from the one true God, what happens is that they get sex, relationships, and marriage wrong. A wrong relationship with God leads to a wrong relationship with people. So God sees this rejection of him in Samaria, and he says, soon it'll be no more. And the thing is, by the time this book was put together, that is exactly what happened. Because it was in 722 BC, which if you remember, is around the middle of Micah's ministry, that what Micah had said would happen, did happen. So at the very start of this book, Micah is putting an oracle in that he says, do you remember when I said this? And now look at Samaria. Therefore you, you all the world, you need to listen very seriously to what I have to say. Because the Lord isn't only going to come to Samaria. So end of verse 9. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So that's the headline. It hasn't got there yet, but through Micah, God is saying it'll reach Jerusalem too. And then as you look on in verses 10 to 16, well, notice there are lots of place names. And I'm guessing places we've never heard of, like Bethlehem, Shafir, and Zanon. And it gets even worse, really. If you read these verses this week, it is very hard to make sense of what Micah is saying about these places. But that's because what Micah is doing in the original Hebrew as he speaks, he's engaging in what we might call wordplay. Although, as we'll see, there's nothing playful about it. Let me give you one example. So verse 10, you've got Beth Afra. Now that place, if you were to translate the bits of the word literally, would be dust house. So look at the sentence. Micah is saying, the dust house will roll in the dust. And that's what he's doing all the way through with this list of places. Why do that? Well, to say judgment is coming, well, that sounds bad, and we might nod in agreement. But how about this? Those in Hackney will be hacked to pieces. Now, for me, as someone who lives in Hackney, you've got my attention. That brings the message home quite starkly, quite uncomfortably. Micah, God, is talking about me. I need to listen. So the point here is there's no avoiding this judgment of God. It will strike you where you live. So that's the Lord coming in judgment. We've had an introduction, but why then? Why is God coming like this? And we're going to look very briefly at the next two chapters of Micah. First, the Lord is coming against covetous people. Well, just before we get into chapter 2, back to 1-7. Remember this summary verse? We saw repetition of idols, repetition of the prostitute, but also repeated is fee. That is the issue of money is raised. And you could almost say if carved images are one expression of idolatry, alongside that, the people were worshipping money. And now Micah's going to show us that into chapter 2. So let's read verse 1 of chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. 
they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. So do you see the picture? The people are there lying in bed, thinking about the day to come, thinking, what's in store for me tomorrow? And the kind of issues on their minds are, how can I close that deal? How can I advance my career? How can I get ahead? What's it going to take to move up the property ladder? How can I have more and better stuff? Of course, as they lie in bed, that doesn't feel wrong because it's obvious everyone else does the same. That's just normal. So then verse 3, if you like, in the morning, these people get up and put their plans into motion. And it's obvious in all this, what's their driving concern? It's not pleasing the Lord or the good of other people. Because as it's described, as they put their coveting, if you like, into action, well, people are getting hurt. There is theft and oppression and exploitation. No doubt these people would deny that they are doing these things, that these outcomes are their responsibility. But you can't fob the Lord off. He can see the consequences of their actions. And he is seeing this is serving their God, their idol, not the Lord, but coveting. They simply want more and more and more. And if that is the thing that fills one's mind while you lie in bed waiting for the next day, where will it end? Well, look at verse 5. The message from God through Micah, Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Slightly tricky language, but it's pointing to the end. In the assembly of the Lord on the last day, what will you have? Therefore, you will have none. Now, of course, those who covet may get more. They may get ahead. They may even get the whole world, but only briefly. All too soon. Maybe in a few decades' time, they will lose it all. It will be gone. When it really matters before the Lord, they'll end up with absolutely nothing forever. So the Lord is coming against covetous people. And with that, the Lord is coming against corrupt prophets. Well, chapter 3, in fact, starts more generally with those in positions of authority and to them, God says, through Micah, verse 1, chapter 3, And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? So here's the headline. What does God want? What's his concern? Justice. And not just that people are aware that God quite likes justice. God wants people who are passionate for justice like he is. But what does God see when he comes down? Verse 2, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Whoa, the people are saying, we have never done anything like this. What is this graphic language? As if we would do that. But God says he can see it. So just imagine around the country, those new developments springing up. 
But who had to pay for them with lives lost on the building site? And then all those attractive goods in the shop windows at great prices. But who produced them? Under what conditions? The shock of today's news of that shipwreck off Italy. But who was profiting from that journey? Or the new gleaming hospitals? But the language used here is sickeningly accurate description of the abortion industry. Who is supporting that practice, the policies, providing the facilities so that that can happen? So you can see in Israel, maybe the professional, the legal, the managerial sectors might all claim not to see this happening. But the Lord sees it and he will not tolerate it. Which is a challenge for us, isn't it? What kind of leaders do we want in politics in industry, in business, in law? What are you hoping for from them? What are you praying for them? Is our longing for justice? And of course, for many of us here, we are the leaders in the workplace or in whatever roles that we have. So here's a challenge. What's our concern? Is it simply the bottom line? Our success, our results, getting ahead. Do we say that Somehow the consequences of our decisions, well, they're out of our hands, really. Or is there meaningful concern for justice, for the people our decisions affect? Which then brings Micah specifically to the prophets. Surely they will speak out against this corruption. They should be. But verse 5 Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Do you see what these so-called prophets are up to? What are they saying? Well, it all depends on who's paying. Those who cough up, who fill the prophets' mouths, peace. Those who won't pay, well, they're given the harsh message. It's obvious these prophets have no fear of God, no desire of his commendation. All they are after is to feather their own nests. They want to be comfortable and popular. They won't hesitate to say what itching ears want to hear. What will the Lord do about all this? Well, Micah has exposed what's going on. In chapter 3, he's building to his conclusion. Let's hear again his climactic finale, having seen the context. From verse 8, God says, so verse 9, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So much shocking behavior in Israel. 
And yet, the prophets dare to claim that the Lord is with them. They blithely assume they are safe from disaster. But how wrong they could be. Now, verse 12 is actually put in an almost understated way to underline how desperate it is. So the great city of Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, just like we saw with Samaria. Now, that's obviously bad, but it's not the worst of it. That's the last line. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Have a think. What is that saying? The place is where the temple used to be. But here, Micah doesn't even use the word temple as if to underline it's gone. It's no longer there. That is, God is not there. God has left. He is no longer with those who were once his people. And therefore, when the people really need him, which they will, they'll cry out to him, but he won't answer. So the message of Micah in these opening three chapters is distressingly clear. The Lord is coming in judgment against covetous people and corrupt prophets. They've turned from the Lord and so he therefore has left them. It won't end well at all. I wonder if before we leave these chapters, have we seen the portrait of a prophet? So imagine... You are Micah. What a message. Charged from God to speak of this calamity that was coming this people's way. But what then was his attitude, his response to this message as God gave it to him to pass on? What difference did it make to him personally? I'll turn back to chapter 1, verse 8. He says, For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Do you see, Micah felt the weight of what he had to say. It pained him deeply. He was gutted. These were his people. He took no delight in this. He didn't hold back the truth. He gave it to them straight. But picture Micah with tears flowing down his face. By contrast, chapters 2 and 3, we get these false prophets saying, take it easy, chill, it's all fine, calm down, Micah, you're wrong. God's not like that. We know God, he's so patient. He can live with this. God takes us as we are. After all, Micah, God is a God of peace. Well, how does a true prophet respond to such comments. Well, look on to chapter 3 and verse 8. So now again, Micah speaks personally and says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So Micah is filled with God's spirit. So we might ask, what does a spirit-filled ministry look like? Well, it exposes sin. Because the thing is, all those things the false prophets are saying, God is 
patient. God is a God of peace. Yes, that's all true. God will welcome us as we are. Yes, that is true as well. But God won't leave us as we are. Because God can't stand sin. And actually, unless we understand this, you can't really understand what it means for God to be patient or a God of peace. And that is why Micah, the spirit-filled prophet, will declare that sin boldly and without equivocation. And why is this recorded for us? Well, reading Micah trains us today to know what a true spirit-filled prophet looks like. In particular, seven centuries after Micah, another man came with a message for Jerusalem. He too said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And his actions showed he really definitely was spirit-filled, but also his words. And his spirit-filled ministry included exposing the heart, and it wasn't a pretty sight. He called sinners to repentance. And he did this in particular among those who claimed to be God's people. But again, he didn't do it aloofly or from a distance. He said this, quote, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Reading on in Luke's gospel, we're told, as he drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. So here at the 4pm, we've got our events week this week and uh, our small group hosting these uh, meetings through the week. Our hope and prayer is that people will encounter Jesus and his words. But let's be honest, one mark of that over time is that sin will be exposed. Because for all of us, if we listen to Jesus and get really excited about him, but at the same time think, my life is pretty much okay, well, we're simply not listening. Hearing Jesus rightly for anyone is a deeply uncomfortable experience. But it serves us well because it makes us realize that if there's any hope to be had, it's not going to come from me or any response I make. My only hope can come from him. Which, as we close, brings us back to Micah. So we've seen the message of these opening three chapters has been consistently and relentlessly of God's judgment, the seriousness of it. So we ask, is there any hope? Well, the situation is desperately bleak. The mountains will melt. The valleys will split open. In chapter 3, verse 6, using the language of Micah, the sun shall go down, the day shall be black, thick darkness. Except there is a ray of light. There's a glimmer of hope in these chapters. Look to chapter 2 and verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a field, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Now, these two verses are very easy to miss 
unless we are listening carefully, because there is a change in these two verses, because at this point it is now God speaking directly. And notice he speaks, verse 12, not to Israel as a whole, but to the remnant of Israel. So that is, God's judgment is still coming. None of this denies that. But this is to say there will be survivors, this remnant. Why is that? Well, look at the language used for them. They are described as the sheep, the sheep who have a shepherd, a leader, that is, but a leader who won't exploit his people, but lead them to freedom. So we ask, who is this shepherd? Well, look at the end of verse 13. He's a king. So again, we ask, well, who is this shepherd king? Very last line, the Lord himself. It's so brief. It is tantalizing, if you like. It's a glimmer, enough to leave us not in total despair. But we ask, what can this mean? If the people are this sinful, what can even a shepherd do? Well, Micah has put this in so that we keep listening to him as we read on. And of course, not only to him, but to what the Lord God has to say through Micah. We want to know more. We need to know more about this shepherd king. Let's pray together. Thank you, our Father, that you do speak to us today. Through this, your prophet Micah, help us to listen carefully as you tell us what is pleasing to you. We do praise you for your concern, for justice, for the good of all people. And as we recognize ways in which we too have committed sins and transgressions, would this cause us to listen all the more to what you have to say about your shepherd king, to look to him for all that we need. Amen.